Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We've been going through the sort of the Christmas account in each of the Gospels uh, for the last several weeks, and we will do so this week and next week. And um, so that's, that's kind of the, the direction we've been going because each Gospel, of course, deals with Jesus, where he came from, how he got here, uh, what he came to do, and all of that. And so we wanted to hit kind of each uh, gospel and each each uh, Christmas narrative that we have in there, and uh, so that's that's why we're going the direction we're doing it today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter two, and uh, of course you, you've noticed that as we come to each of the different uh, gospel uh, narratives or accounts of the the, the uh, uh, Christmas story, we haven't covered the entire thing. We've we've hit certain aspects of that, and uh, and that's that's by design too. It's an odd thing. I don't, I don't know if you've ever thought about what it. Uh, what it's like to preach and what it's like to preach on a topic like this. Like when it comes around to Christmas season, what are you going to preach on? You're going to preach on Christmas, right? You're going to preach on Advent. You know, you've got a a sort of a limited, uh, um, you know, range of topics that you're probably going to choose from if you're going to speak on the topic of Christmas. And uh, and so it's an interesting thing and uh, to to think about that. But something that I wanted to, uh, I was thinking about this week and I kind of wanted to kind of bring you in on how we think about topics like this is that we're not primarily trying to do something new that's not really our main goal it's not really our main goal to it's not our main goal to be interesting in our telling of these it's a goal of course and you prefer it if we're interesting and of course the christmas story is very interesting but that's not our ultimate goal We're not trying to find something new and we're not trying to find a new way to say the same old thing or anything like that. We're really just trying to be faithful to the text and we're trying to preach what's here. And so when you look at this, you're going to see, I've heard this preached before. I've read this before. I've heard sermons on this before. And, and, and that's normal and that's okay. And that's a good thing that you've heard those sermons. But when we approach this, we're not sitting here as preachers trying to think, now, how can we present this in a surprising way or how can we find some hidden thing that's buried in the text maybe or or whatever we we just want to present what's here and so uh preaching during the christmas season is a very interesting thing and it's an exercise in that we want you to know this text and we want you to receive from this text what the author intended for you to receive what god means for you to have from this text and so there's going to be nothing new in here and nothing surprising and nothing amazing. It's going to be this text and what the intent of this text is going to be. And so really that's, that's our desire. And really that's our desire when we preach any text is that you, that you be impacted by the text of Scripture and not by a new thought or a novel idea or an interesting way of putting it primarily. Of course, we want to put things in interesting ways and we want you to think of things maybe you've not thought of before. But primarily we want you to be impacted by the text itself and so it's our desire to preach the text as it is and so that's that's going to be the case this morning and uh and so i i think this this passage is a very powerful one and it's uh, going to answer the question who's against christmas and as i was reading through this and studying through it i was kind of struck by that that question in regard to this passage but before we get to this passage before we read through it let's uh, go ahead and go to the lord in prayer Father, we we come to you this morning thanking you for your word because it is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces right down to the core of who I am. And it, it does so not because it changes, 
but because it is your word and because you speak to us through it. You, by your spirit, use your word to speak to our lives. So, Father, I thank you for that. I thank you for your word. I thank you that we get the opportunity here to proclaim your word openly. We're not concerned about suicide bombers trying to come in the door. We're not concerned that we have to fashion a, a balloon that we can launch over uh, a border into a, into a country um, in, in order for us to be able to hear the gospel, in order, in order for us to be able to study your word. We have it right here, and we get, to, we get to proclaim it boldly, and we do so. And I pray that you would help us to do so this morning, and I pray that you would help us to realize the very great privilege it is that we have this word in front of us, which is from you to us. It tells us about you and it tells us about us and how we can know you father i pray that you would help us during this time it's it's the christmas season and we're excited about things that are upcoming and we're thinking about gifts we're going to get or going to buy and we're thinking about family we're going to see or maybe not going to see and we're thinking about a lot of things but for the next few minutes lord i pray that you would help us to be right here in your text and i pray that you by your spirit would use your text to to strike us to to impact us in our lives. Father, we rejoice that we have this opportunity. We pray for your help. Pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Matthew chapter 2, and I'm going to go ahead and, and read the whole chapter to us just so we have it fresh in our minds. Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you've found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child, the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, 
according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And so that's the story we're going to cover today. And that's the aspect we want to look at. And and uh, we're, we're going to focus on uh, the Magi and we're going to focus on Herod. But I want to say a few words about Joseph before we really get to the story. If you think about Joseph in this story, he's not mentioned a lot in the Gospels and he's not mentioned later on. He's not doesn't seem to be a major character. He he occurs in here a lot, but uh, he, he he's not a he's not a central figure. But I was thinking about Joseph and uh, he, he really struck me. You know, he's he's not Jesus dad. Actually, he's not his biological father, but of course he played the role of father and he played it very well and faithfully. And he was the father of other children and and, uh, Jesus siblings and all of that. But if you think about Joseph, he's a noteworthy character. Just thinking about what he did and what he did not do. Right. He he was a man of faith and he was a man of, of, of obedience and he was willing to obey even if it meant great sacrifice for him and for his whole family. You know, first of all, if you think about it, did, did Mary know that she had conceived, uh, she had conceived of the Holy Spirit? Did, did she know that she was a virgin and was with child? She did. Did Joseph know that? He had been told it. He'd been told it by an angel. That's a, that's a pretty good authority. He had been told it, but he had to believe that angel. He didn't know. He didn't know. He took it on faith. He believed. And so that's an interesting thing about Joseph, because if you look at all he does, he fully believes it. He's fully committed to the same idea that Mary knew for certain. And she was the only one on earth who knew for certain. But Joseph walked in obedience. He completely believed. He had faith in uh, in what God had said, what the angel had said regarding the birth of this baby. And so he was able to he was uh, he was willing to take a bride who was with child, he was able, willing to endure the, uh, you know, the comments that would have been made, the, all the, you know, all of the observations from, from people around him. He was willing to, to enter into that, to take on that role. And he took it on faith. Mary knew and Joseph believed. Very interesting guy. He also was willing to flee his homeland at God's warning, right? God came and warned him what was going to happen. And so he fled. Right. He had already once traveled from Galilee down into Bethlehem and uh, for the sake of the census. But then later on, you know, an angel appears, tells him and he he flees and goes away into uh, into Egypt. And so he's he's willing to take his family and run. He's willing to, you know, to go on the lamb and uh, kind of thing and go go hide in Egypt for a while and then move again. He's willing to move back, but he didn't get to move back to Bethlehem where he kind of had things set up. He moved back to Galilee where he had been before. He's willing to do that for his family. Uh, in light of God's warning. And so 
He's a man of faith and he's a man of commitment. And if you think about the role that he played, even just in this chapter right here, he was Jesus' protector. He was Jesus' protector. What was standing between baby Jesus and destruction? Of course, we know all of the armies of heaven were standing between. But what was the one man standing in the way? What was the one man who was taking instruction from angels and who was taking risks on behalf of his family and who was standing in as the protector of Jesus? It was Joseph. And so, you know, thinking about it as a, as a dad, and, and God is not a dad in the same way that we are exactly, but thinking as a dad, thinking as a father, God chose Joseph to be the protector of his child. Joseph's an in- interesting guy. He's a strong character. He doesn't, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't appear a lot, though he appears a lot in this chapter. And, and I wanted just to kind of say those things about Joseph, that as you study through and read through Matthew chapter 2, he's, he's a very powerful character, that he would be willing to defend his family in such a way, that he would up and run, that he would leave in the middle of the night and move to a foreign country to, to protect his family. And then later on at, at, at the word of an angel, he would move back and realizing this is a bad situation. I'm not going to live under the reign of Archelaus. He instead goes to another place and moves up to Galilee. And, and so uh, Joseph is a strong character. But he's not who we're focusing on today. We're going to focus, first of all, on, on, on the Magi. We want to talk about who they are and, and kind of what they meant. Of course, the Magi, the wise men from the east, right? And, and they come and, and, uh, and they come to Jerusalem and they come and they visit and, uh, and they say there in verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So these magi, um, this is, you know, Ma- Matthew's the only one who tells us about them. We don't hear about them elsewhere. Uh, Matthew tells us about them. And who were they? Well, magi, th- that word can mean like magicians or it's translated wise men for most of us, but it also meant like stargazer or astrologer or something like that. Someone who was, who was an expert at reading the stars and, and, and they believed that the stars either influenced or indicated kind of what was going on in this world. But that's, that's who they were. And it says they were from, from the east. Okay, well that's a direction. That's not a country, right? And so we know it's east of Jerusalem, east of Israel. Where exactly? Well, the Bible doesn't say. And uh, it's possible and, and maybe even likely that they were from Babylon. The, uh, the idea of stargazers and things like that kind of fits in with, with uh, the culture of Babylon and the things that were going on there. So we know that about them. And the other thing that we know about them is they had some kind of information about the birth of a king in Israel. In Jerusalem, they, they had that information somehow. And so that's that's kind of what we know about them. We don't know a ton more. We can speculate and we could do a lot of historical research and maybe come up with some ideas. But um, but th- those are kind of the basic things we know about them. And the, the first thing there is that they responded to limited revelation. Now, I say limited. We don't really know. Like I said, we don't really know what the revelation was that they had. But they didn't, they didn't refer to, you know, in your Old Testament it was written such and such, or your prophets said such and such, and that's why we're here. What they said is we saw your, the, the star, and so we came. There's a king supposed to be born. Where is he? So they don't, they don't have, they don't present a lot of information. And, but they knew there was something significant about the appearance of this particular star. They knew there was uh, a significant event connected with that. Appeared in, in the night sky, whereas he who's been born king of the Jews, we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. So they identify this star 
with the birth of this baby and that he's the king and that he's worthy of worship and that he's in uh, Israel. And so those are the things that they know. How did they know that? How did they know? Uh, you've read the Old Testament. Where, where is that description? Well, I, I, I'm not sure, but there, there's a, if you think back to Numbers chapter 22 and 23 and 24 and the story of, of Balaam and Balak. Remember King Balak and he called in, uh, he, he called in Balaam and he wanted to, he wanted this, this Gentile, um, uh, wise man or prophet, uh, wanted him to come and curse the nation of Israel. Uh, for him, right? Because King Balak, who was the, the king of, of Moab at the time, he was at war with them and he, and he wanted to destroy them and whatnot. And so uh, this is during the time of the desert wanderings. And he calls in Balaam and Balaam comes in and he, you know, speaks and the whole thing with Balaam's donkey and all that. You remember that story? Well, there's an interesting verse in there in chapter 24, chapter 24 of Numbers and verse 17, we have, uh, we have these prophetic words that, by the way, were recognized later on to be messianic. They were recognized by the Jews to be about the Messiah who's to come. And we read this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. And so that passage in Numbers 24 seems to be the most explicit kind of prophecy given about a star being connected with the birth of a king in Israel. And there's not a whole lot of information there. But somehow it seems like they were able to, uh, to read that, understand that, and then see this star and observe that it was connected. But how did these guys who were from the east, they were not Jews, they were Gentiles, they came from a far land from the east, not in Israel itself, how did they get that information? Well, there's, there's uh, some speculation, and I, I think there may be something to it, that if they really are from Babylon, well, we know the, his, uh, the history of Israel in connection with Babylon. There was a time of exile. If you remember the history of Israel, hundreds of years earlier, the, uh, the Jews had been exiled to Babylon, and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and all of that happens uh, in connection with Babylon and, and that area. And so there you have a bunch of Jews, including the prophet Daniel and others who were, who were brought into that land. And so it may very well be that Daniel or others passed on or left behind their, uh, their scriptures, their writings and their teachings. And maybe, maybe Daniel was teaching. We know Daniel was a very influential man and, um, maybe he taught, maybe he, he created in, in, uh, in the people there an expectation of this coming king. We don't really know. This is kind of all speculation. We know that they came from the east and they knew about the star. That's about all we know about them. But it, but it's, it seems to fit. What's interesting about this, though, is that these foreign Gentiles had some, some degree of revelation. We don't know how much. And they responded in obedience to it. They came. They had some revelation. At least they knew about this. And they responded in obedience and they came to worship this king. And so they were, the fact of their responding to the revelation is what's important here. Because these were not Jews. These are not the people you would expect to be faithful. These are foreigners. And it's interesting, if they really are responding to the, the prophecy that Balaam gave in, in Numbers chapter 24, he also was a Gentile prophesying about the coming king. And so here you have this unexpected faithfulness by 
by these, uh, these foreign wise men who came, and they came expecting this messianic king. Whatever revelation they had, they responded to it. And that, that's encouraging to me because we have all of the revelation. Do we respond to it? Do we respond to it? These, these men did, and they traveled, and they came, and they worshipped. Uh, they saw that, that, that what, what had been promised was being fulfilled, and they came and worshipped. Whatever amount of revelation it was, they responded to it in obedience. And so uh, not only do they respond to limited revelation, but they also come from afar to worship, right? They, they didn't just come to see and they didn't just come to form an alliance with, a, you know, some other nation or something like that. They came to worship this baby. They came to worship the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so here you have Gentiles once again coming to worship. They were outside of uh, the, the nation of Israel outside of God's covenant children. And yet here they are coming in and they're coming in to worship him. They travel from afar to do that, to bow down before him. They were Gentiles. They weren't from Israel. And that's new at this time. We're, we're not far from the book of Acts where we're going to see the gospel go broadly to Gentiles. We're going to see that start to happen in the book of Acts. But we're not there yet. This is new. And this, this would have been very strange because everyone in, in, uh, in the Jewish estimation, the Jewish understanding, and as far as we know, the people who knew, uh, you know, everyone who knew God was a, was a Jew. Or maybe it was someone who, you know, had, had become a, uh, a Jew or was in the process of, of becoming a Jew in, uh, in, in becoming a God-fearer and whatnot. But here you have these people who are outsiders and they're coming to worship this Jewish Messiah. And that, that points to the direction the gospel is going to go. That the gospel, God's working with mankind is not just working with the nation of Israel, of course. It's intended for all the nations. It's intended, the gospel is intended for all, uh, all peoples. He's not just coming for the Jews. Instead, he's coming to ransom. Jesus is coming to ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation chapter 5, it's for everyone. To which we can all say amen and praise God because the vast majority of us are from those nations, not the nation of Israel. But here it's, it's striking that you have the Magi obeying what little, whatever revelation they had, but then they come and worship Jesus, right? And they worshiped him extravagantly. Look at verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to, the, to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so they come... And they come to worship, and they come to worship extravagantly. They bring these gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and they, they, they bring them they bring them out of their own treasures, and they give them to the baby and to the baby's family. And, uh, and this, is, this is incredible. These are amazing gifts for a poor family who couldn't find you know, room at the inn when, they, when it came time to give birth. You've got a poor family, and here you've got these lavish gifts being, uh, being given to them. This would have been, this would have been uh, opulent. These are amazing gifts that were given. And 
you know, gold and frankincense and myrrh. We, we, could, uh, we could speculate, as, as some have thought, maybe that the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh were actually uh, sort of prophetic of the offices of prophet and priest and king that Jesus was going to have, possibly. Maybe there's some connection b- between those. Uh, there's also some thought that, you know, the, the myrrh was, was to prepare bodies for burial. And so this was, again, sort of prophetic, a preparation in advance, sort of, of Jesus for burial that uh, he actually here he is being born he's new he's he's young but he's going to grow up and he's going to die for a particular purpose and so maybe the myrrh was given to uh to prepare his body for burial in a sense at least prophetically maybe those things are the case but but what i want to uh, draw our attention to is just how rich these gifts were that these men came to worship they came from afar they were gentiles they came from afar in obedience to whatever revelation it was they had, and they came to worship and bow down, and they worshiped richly, extravagantly, that they dumped on the worship on this Jesus. Gifts were extravagant. And that's, again, a fulfillment of, of the Old Testament expectation that the Jewish king was not just going to be a Jewish king. He was for all nations. And that just, that's not just a, a, comment, a commentary from the book of Acts or from the book of Revelation or something like that. That was the expectation from the Bible itself. You remember the uh, citation we have there in chapter 2 and verse 6. And you, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. That's quote, quoted from Micah chapter 5. Well, if you go back to Micah chapter 5 and, lip, and flip one chapter left to Micah chapter 4, in that chapter you find this quotation. Many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And so that's the expectation, even from the Old Testament, is that this king is going to be lifted up and he's going to draw foreigners to himself. He's going to draw all the nations to himself. People from every tribe and tongue and nation are going to be drawn to him. And we see that being fulfilled already right here when Jesus is small. We see the Gentiles coming in. And so Jesus isn't the king of, of uh, an insignificant nation. In fact, he isn't the king of any one ethnic group. He's actually the king of all, whether they know it or not. And the Magi respond in obedience, and they come and they worship him. They bow down to him. But Herod, on the other hand, is a different story. So you have these magi, they're foreigners, they shouldn't be responding to the Jewish king, they shouldn't be responding to prophecies about God sending his, his king, his Messiah, but they did. And on the other hand, you have Herod right there in the land. You have Herod, who's full of fear and hatred. And whereas the magi responded to the revelation that they have, here you have Herod and he misuses his abundant revelation. He's got it all. He's got the whole Old Testament in front of him. And not only does he have the, old, the whole Old Testament in front of him, he's got all the Bible scholars in the land that he could ask. He could inquire of them. He could find out and he can obey what is given. But he doesn't. He's instead going to misuse that revelation. Look at chapter 2, starting in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
And so there you have Herod. He's got the Bible. Herod's, Herod's not a Jew, by the way. He's Edomian, or the Old Testament word is an, he's an Edomite. He's from a neighboring country. And he's a relative, but he's not a, he's not a Jew. Um, and, but he has the Old Testament. He's, he's king in Jerusalem. He's got the Old Testament. And he's got these, these scribes and the high priests and all that who can explain it to him. He could ask anything, and, and they would know. And they would, they would, you know, they're experts in the law. And he's got that information. He's got those resources, and, and he could ask them anything. And, and what he asks is not for the purpose of obeying it. He asks because he wants to find out who this king is for his own purposes. And so he asks them, what does Scripture say? Where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And, of course, the scribes know, and they answer, and they, they give him the, the correct answer, the proper answer. But is it so he can obey it? Is it so he can go and worship? I mean, actually, he says, it's so I can go and worship. We know from the story, though, that, that, uh, that he's lying through his teeth. He's got something else in mind. But he's using the Bible, and he's using the information he can get out of the Bible for his own purposes. He's misusing it. He doesn't want to go worship. He doesn't want to honor this king. He wants to, he wants to take him out. So he's using Scripture, but he's misusing Scripture. And I was thinking about this, about how often we go to Scripture for our own purposes rather than for the purposes God intended it. God intended that prophecy to be given so people would go and worship this king. So people would do what the Magi did. And he's going to do exactly the opposite. But how often do we go to Scripture for the good of someone else? When really, you know, if I've got a conflict with someone, it takes two to tango and I'm part of the problem, but that's really kind of irrelevant. I really just want this person to hear this thing. Or how often do we nudge the person next to us in a sermon? Did you get that? Did you hear that? You need to, you need to obey that, right? It's, uh, it's pretty tempting, I know. But how often do we misuse Scripture for our own purposes? How, how often do we study it and maybe even learn something so that we can hit someone else over the head with it? Let's don't do that. Let's study Scripture and learn Scripture for the purpose it was intended. God gave us His Word so that He, would, so that he could teach us about Him, about who He really is. God gave us His Word so that we could learn about who we really are and so that we could learn about how to know Him, how to be reconciled to Him, how to have peace with God. If we're misusing Scripture, we're headed this direction. And so we see that's exactly what Herod is doing. He had all the Old Testament revelation, but rather than submitting to it and obeying it, he misused it for his own purposes. But he not only misuses the revelation, he also manipulates the faithful. Right? If you think about the faithful there, you've got the scribes he asked the question of, but you've also got the magi who had come to visit, and he's quizzing them. Oh, okay, uh, yeah, tell me more. Tell me more so that I can you know, learn. And, and, uh, and, and when you find out where he is, go and search for him. And when you find out where he is, come back and tell me so I can come and worship him too. He's, the Magi have come and they've been very open and honest about why they've come. Hey, we saw the star and the king's been born, so we want to worship him. Where is he? Can you tell me where he is so we can come worship him? They're very open, very, very uh, uh, transparent in their motives. And so Herod decides he's going to use them. He's going to use them for his own purposes. Look at verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem saying, 
Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now you wonder if these were really wise men, you know, did they know what he was up to? Were they able to see through his ruse? Oh, he doesn't want to worship. <laughs> he's, he's wanting something else entirely. Did they understand? I don't know. But, uh, but here, here we have Herod doing his best to uh, manipulate them, right? He wants to find out information from them. He wants to use their transparency. He wants to use their good motives. And he puts a, a, you know, a godly motive or godly face on his own motive for why he wants to find out this information. But he ends up using me or using the, uh, the, the, the faithful, those who are, who are just trying to worship just trying to go and find him. And that's what you have him doing. So he manipulates the faithful. And of course, you know where this heads. He also murders children. He's going to murder the children. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, because the wise men, when they went and they found the baby and they worshiped, they were warned to leave and so they left a different direction they did not go back and talk talk to herod and so herod had been tricked and when he learned that he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet jeremiah a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation rachel weeping for her children she refused to be comforted because they are no more. And so Herod, in quizzing the Magi, finds out from them the location. Remember, he asked the scribes to find out the location. It's in Bethlehem. He quizzes the Magi. When did you find? When did you see the star? When did it first appear? So he can put together a timeline. So he's got, he's got geographic boundaries he's got to search. He's got a timeline that he's got to look within. And then when they leave, he uses those, those facts that he learns, and he just takes them all out he just goes and and kills all the male children from two years old and under in bethlehem and in that region so he just took a broad stroke and he's he knew he had heard from the magi uh, the the age of the baby and so he killed killed anyone who might possibly have been a candidate even to maybe could possibly be that baby Someone who could be the Messiah. Someone who could threaten his own kingdom. Threaten his own throne. And so he just broadly wipes them all out. It's amazing what people are capable of. It's amazing what we're able to love. We've been talking in Sunday school class about, about uh, idols that we have. Different things that, that, we, that we're willing to worship. And the things it can lead us to do. The choices we can make because of the things we're worshiping. We were talking in Sunday school about our identity in Christ and how our identity in Christ governs the things that we choose to do. If we, if we, if we remind ourselves who we are in Christ, that we are forgiven children of God because of what Christ has done for us, then we will respond in different ways and we will, we will make different decisions in life. And here you look at Herod. What was his idol? His own power. His own position. And what was he willing to do to protect that? Anything. He was willing to murder small children. And that raises the question for us about our own idols. What things do we worship? What do we hold dear? 
that we would do anything to protect. We would lie to people to protect those idols. We might even hurt people. We would run away. We would put on a different face. What would we be willing to do to protect that idol? And here you have Herod and his idol, of course, is his own power. And he's willing to commit murder on this scale. People are are capable of unspeakable evil. In, In Herod's evil brain, it was more desirable to kill small children than to face possible overthrow of his own kingdom. Herod would rather slaughter children than submit to the king of kings. Some people would rather do anything than submit to the king of kings. Some of you would rather do anything than submit to the king of kings. Some of you would be willing to put on any face, play any part, say anything, change any bad habit, as long as it meant that you didn't have to submit to Christ as Lord in your heart. And I'm here to tell you that Christ is Lord, whether you admit it or not. Whether you submit to him or not, he is Lord. And there will come a day when you will be forced to bow the knee if you don't do so beforehand. And you will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because he is the king. He's not the potential king. Even the language here in in Matthew chapter 2 talks about Uh, The the Magi wanted to come to see him who was born king of the Jews, not born to be king of the Jews, not born to become king of the Jews. He was born king. He's already king. And he's king now. And we will submit. We will bow the knee if we've not done so before then. This is a Christmas narrative, of course, and this is the Christmas season. And so how many of us really understand what's going on at Christmas? How many of us really understand what we're celebrating? We're not celebrating one who would one day become a king of some podunk place. We are celebrating the one who was born king of all. King of kings and lord of lords, even as a small child. This is Jesus. It's very clear who he is. This is, this is what he came to do and this is what he came to be. And he didn't come to bring peace to all people. He's going to say... Nine chapters later in the book of Matthew, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's Matthew 10:34 to 39. This is the Jesus we're celebrating. At Christmas, we're celebrating the most polarizing person who's ever existed. We can either bow to him, uh, bow the knee to him now like the Magi did. We can submit to him or we're going to hate him like Herod. But there's no middle ground. There is no middle ground. And that's why I asked the question, who's against Christmas? Because, you know, there might be nine people in Fallon who are against Christmas, right? Christmas as it is, Christmas the holiday, Christmas where they get time off work, they get together with family, they eat great stuff, they do all the... Who's against Christmas? Well, no one's against that Christmas. But this Christmas, this Christmas of the king being born, the king who's the most polarizing person, the king who is going to 
be the person that's going to result in a split even between mother and daughter over who is Jesus. Because it comes down to who he is and am I going to submit to him. There is no middle ground. The fact that there seems to us like there is a middle ground reveals that we have not truly understood the meaning of of Jesus' advent. If we understand his meaning, the meaning of his advent, we know there is no middle ground. Our world would have us believe that Jesus, if you dare say his name, is a cute and cuddly symbol of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And perhaps even he's a symbol of God's many blessings on us. That's who Jesus is. The world would have us believe. Nothing more. But Jesus' take on himself is very different. He said, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge it before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's who Jesus is. He is the king. I've called this message, who's against Christmas? And the answer is the majority of people around us. The majority of people on earth are against Christmas. This Christmas. They like the holiday, but if if they really knew what it meant, they wouldn't want anything to do with Christmas because it means bowing the knee to Christ as Lord. And Herod wouldn't do that. And most around us won't do that. But won't you bow the knee to Christ? Won't you bow the knee? Won't you confess that, that He really is truly Lord of all? He's not, not a cute symbol, but He is Lord. He is King. He's the Sovereign One. He was born to save His people from their sins. And won't you believe in Him to save you from your sins? Won't you believe in Him? Won't you put your faith in Him to trust Him to do that same thing for you? He will. He will do that for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Christmas, and I thank You for the truth of what this means about Jesus, the Son of God, as a little baby, as a small child, Not going to be king one day, if only, if maybe, but actually king, actually ruler of all. Lord, God himself in the flesh. Yahweh from the Old Testament as a two-year-old baby. I thank you for Christmas. I thank you that Christmas points toward Easter, that he came not just to uh, be worshipped by the Magi, not just to uh, do the things that he would do in his childhood and his life. He came to obey you. He came to walk in obedience to you. He came to obey you in the way that I never could and never would. And then he came to die on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin, that I might have forgiveness, that I might have the righteousness of Christ applied to me. And then you raised him from the dead conquering death, conquering sin, showing that indeed He is in fact Lord of approving, showing the cards, showing the proof, the evidence that He really is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we get to celebrate His birth. We get to celebrate His coming right here this time of year. Father, I thank You for that. I thank You for this passage and I thank You for these truths and I thank You for those in this room and I pray, Lord, that we would bow the knee to You, that we would come and worship You uh, even extravagantly, that we would not be like Herod who, who had an, uh, idols in his heart that he would rather 
commit murder, then bow the knee to you. May we bow the knee to you. May you be our only God in truth and in our hearts. Father, thank you for these these truths. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your kindness towards us. And thank you for Jesus who came that we might have peace with God. I thank you and I praise you, Lord. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God bless you. Amen and amen.